Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guests are members of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, and they'll be sharing their story of food addiction and how food addicts has helped them. So I'd like to welcome Jessica and Steve to the show. Hi there. Hi there. Hi. So we usually talk on the show about growing up and the things that influenced us uh, to take the path we took. And, you know, the influence is sort of like, you know, school, family, friends, whatever. So Jessica, starting with you, what was your early life like? My father was in the military, so we moved around a bit. I got to live in paradise. I got to live in Hawaii for the first conscious years of my life. We let, we got, I got there when I was three and left when I was seven and um, then moved to DC and um, Virginia. And just, we lived in great places. Most when we were on the mainland, we lived mostly in the South. My family's from Texas long-term and um, lived in white suburbs, military type suburbs. It was around people who looked like me and had lives similar to me a lot of the time. Um, I didn't realize sort of where that fit in till much later, but, um, you know, when I think of Hawaii, I think of beautiful sights, but mostly I think of the smell of restaurants <laughs> that I can, you know, that's how I organize my memories a lot. Um, my folks both worked and worked really hard to make sure we all, we both, my brother and I got to college and I think they put us first a lot. Um, it turns out later there was addiction in my family, my father and a lot of affairs and I think had his own thing with alcohol and maybe even with food. He would come in from the garage smelling of peanuts <laughs> and uh, he wasn't supposed to be eating because he had heart problems. So there was just a, along with everything being kind of perfect on the outside, there was, I, I learned early to sneak and find out secrets when people weren't around. My folks both worked and I was the last one home. So I got to be at home with whatever I wanted to eat and whatever I wanted to watch and whoever drawers I wanted to rifle through, whoever bureau drawers, I mean, and um, found people's letters to read. And I was good in school. I started school early because I'm just that I'm, I'm multiple choice smart. I'm not essay question smart, but I was multiple choice smart. And I liked adults and adults liked me, but I was kind of nervous around my peers and um, didn't quite know how to do the fun thing. I knew how to get the right answer and be the teacher's pet, but that doesn't really go on the playground. So I felt insecure you know, as I realized later and couldn't understand because everything was going well. Yeah. So what about friendships? Did you find it difficult to make friends? You know, you wouldn't think so looking at me. Like, I mean, I had friends. I always had friends and, um, it wasn't till later that I realized that I'll tell you more about this later, but I, I had friends that I wasn't close to, I guess you could say. I had a pretense going so much, but I, I always had people in my life. And I think, again, looking at me, I would have been the perfect little, everything's normal, everything's fine. And, and that was important to me to appear that way and not be any trouble. I think I was really attached to approval growing up. Yeah, a, a lot of that's also associated with people pleasing and manipulating so that people don't bug you. <laughs> yep. And hiding, hiding in plain sight. Yeah. 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 So what about your mum? What sort of influence did she have on you? <laughs> I'm staying with her now. I'm 63 and she's 92. So I have this perspective <laughs> recently. I've been like, this is why I'm like, the she's a strong woman and extremely disciplined, not an you wouldn't think the only thing she might be addicted to is moderation. She's very reasoned and disciplined and principled and worked hard. I think while my dad was kind of the fun parent, she kept us together, you know, kept, kept the um, meals organized. She planned meals a, a month ahead and everything was very organized because she worked and she was a teacher and very much 
uh, I think she was smarter than the era allowed her to be really. So she just put it all into being a good wife and a good mother and a good citizen and a good teacher. And she was just really good at stuff. It was hard to measure up. Yeah. So did things change when you moved from lower school to higher school? Uh, that's a good question. Everything was kind of coming apart when I moved from in, in, in the state where I lived, we had up to sixth grade was elementary school and then seventh grade was middle school. And that was the year that I found out my dad was cheating on my mom. And that was the year he went to Vietnam. And that was the year we lived with my grandparents. So things were kind of up in the air. And to me, it was good to find, it was like a relief to find out what it was that was going on that had been seemed so strange. So I was reading my parents' letters back and forth and finding out these things. Again, always taking solace in food and always thinking, gosh, I really want more than other people have. So I think I got less and I got more and more private with peers at that time, I would say, and more afraid of growing up. When my dad came back from Vietnam, I didn't want him to see that I had hit puberty. It didn't feel safe. I was supposed to be his little girl. And um, I didn't know it was a little difficult to navigate his sexualizing women and my developing yeah, awareness of that and my own development at the same time. So it was, it was fraught at that time. Yeah, it often is, yeah, around that time. So what, what sort of foods were you attracted to? I was most attracted to anything we didn't have in the house. My mom was very, very, um, we had nutritious meals. There wasn't, it was pretty weighed and measured when I was growing up. So um, my, and my dad represented the treats. So kid food, you know, junk food and ball game food, or um, I would get ice cream cones when I get A's and I got a lot of A's. So that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, if it was frothy and if it was, easy, you know, easy, creamy, you know, I like textures. I was really into textures and smells. Once I found out that there was Halloween candy in the house, I was zooming in on it. Cereals, things that would just be kind of soothing, I think, comfort foods, but I liked everything. I, I was a big quantities person. It always bothered me when a meal was over and I didn't, I would look around and say, are they as bothered as I am about this? And it didn't seem like they were. So I was always trying to figure out how to get more. It didn't matter what. Right. Okay. Um, well, the same question, Steve. So what was your life like growing up, you know, family, friends, school, and what do you think influenced you from an early age? So I'm the, I'm the baby. I have two older sisters. I am uh, nine years younger than my oldest sister and three years older than the next oldest. I'm pretty sure I was an accident. Um, that was not something my parents would ever say, but um, you know, I was, I was born in the Bronx um, and when I was four, we moved out of the Bronx into a house, uh, upstate, not upstate New York, but upstate from New York city, about an hour North of New York city. And, uh, yeah, I was an extremely quiet kid. Best way to describe myself is I was in, I was the invisible kid. I, I know the stories from when I was a kid that I didn't speak till I was like four years old in the house. Um, I actually wasn't potty trained until I was four years old, is what the story goes. I, I started speaking at the same time because my grandmother, um, my mother's mother, potty trained me. I never thought it was an odd story till I was until I had kids of my own. And uh, I was super. I didn't speak in public probably till I was in the in my twenties. Um, not 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 common. I was a super quiet kid, a super shy. I was invisible. It's not that I was a good kid. It's not that I was a bad kid. I just didn't do anything. I was always good in school. I was the kid who sat in class and didn't do any homework. And I was a solid B student. I could write essays because my parents were first generation born in this country. Their parents spoke with an accent. They spoke perfect English. So I learned how to speak from them. And when I learned to read, to me, the whole world opened up to me. I, I read all the time. Um, I read and I watched TV and I ate. I wasn't a fat kid, but I ate all the time. Yeah. Why did you eat? What I know now is I started eating probably before I was five. And I think it was because I just, I was always scared. I, I didn't know that until I was much, much older, but I was just always full of fear. I always had this feeling, this feeling in my gut and I ate my mother, may she rest in peace. When I was born, she came down with uh, diabetes. And when I was like four, we, we moved up about five. She got a new doctor 
And the doctor told her that if you want me to be your doctor, you have to quit smoking and not have any sugar or salt in your diet because of her diabetes and high blood pressure. She never took insulin, but she managed it with pills, I guess. I, I don't know exactly. It's only not with diet. Um, so I never had sweets as a kid, per se, except uh, in the spring during the Jewish holiday at Passover, we always had treats because that's a big candy holiday. And we always had people over for the first two nights. Um, you know, but other than that, we never had sweets. So I ate pounds of fruit um, starting as a kid. I ate constantly. Leftovers just never existed, right? You know, my family of five, my mother always cooked for 20 and there was never leftovers. And I was the main reason for that. And as my sisters moved out, same amount of food, same amount of leftovers. I, I'm pretty sure I wasn't alone, but I can't tell you who else ate. You know? And I cleaned up, which meant I made sure I ate all the leftovers. So what about friends then? I knew a lot of kids in high school. I know that during high school, I could tell you everybody's name in my high school. I, I mean, I went to the same school district, K through 12. Um, it was 2000 kids in my high school and I knew pretty much everybody by sight and by name. Didn't know anything about them. Not a thing about them. Don't remember anything about them. Since then, I have one person who was my best man at my wedding and I was best man at his second wedding. His first wedding, I was in basic training. And, you know, and, and we still keep up. Not well, but we still do keep up. But I had no friends as a kid, um, really. I, I had acquaintances at school and that was about it. I, I was not, I, I went home and watched TV. Yeah. So you, you said your mom was a diabetic, but did your dad have much of an influence on your early life? Yes, but um, my dad, I, I always describe it as, you know, the curse of Ozzie and Harriet, the 1950s television show. Dad came home and had uh, had dinner. The dinner was ready for him and he had a, had a drink. Dad never interacted with the kids, but for five minutes. Right. So my dad came home and didn't do much. And since I was the only boy, my mom figured that my dad should be more involved. And But nobody told him. And I don't think he knew at the time how. It didn't dawn on him. He didn't. It's not something that he had any idea about. You know, it's funny. His mother, um, my when my grandfather was still alive. I remember my grandmother used to uh, tell my grandfather, Joe, go play with your grandson. You know, and my grandfather would sit there and play cards with me because that's what my grandfather did all day. He played cards with me. I couldn't play cards. So we played cards all day. You know, we play cards for two hours. You know, he'd take me for a walk. And I talk and run around and he'd sit there and chew on a cigar. My grandfather, my father, nobody told him, you know. Yeah. So again, you know, changing schools and going to, um, I guess, middle school, did that have a, an impact on you, on your life? Junior high school was strange because I went from being in the same school with the same kids to being in a school that combined like three or four elementary schools. Um, but it wasn't that much different. There was some more um, choices. I remember liking school. I'd always liked school. You know, in uh, sixth grade, which was still an elementary school then, um, my, Mr. Dietzel was very into science and I became an engineer and I was real into that. Uh, in junior high school, I remember Mr. Taravella because he was the first English teacher I had to change English every six uh, weeks. And I just took his class because I don't like that. I don't, I don't I, turns out I don't like change. Um, so I just, I just kept him. I was afraid to choose anybody else. And I can remember halfway through eighth grade. So a year and a half of being with him. I, I remember getting caught talking in class. He threw the eraser at me. I gave him the eraser back and he sat there staring at the eraser going, going, looking at the eraser going, I didn't know if when I, when I heard Steve talking, I didn't know if I should throw the eraser at him or go find out what he was saying. Cause I never heard him talk. I just didn't speak. I mean, people today would not believe that, but um, I just didn't speak. I don't think it's too surprising. I think everybody's affected differently. Yeah. Um, so what about relationships with your sisters? So my oldest sister, nine years older than me, is actually still difficult, but she was much older than me. She skipped kindergarten and second grade. She went to college when she was 16. I was seven. So her memory of me as a little kid and mine don't, Carl because I don't remember much before I was seven. I know her. I learned her more about when I was a teenager. I got to know her more. But uh, my other sister was close to my age. 
um, you know, we used to look alike as kids. I used to say I look like her until I grew up because I got taller than her. But it, it was not, I did not get along. Uh, I was not close to her um, by the time she hit puberty. Um, we took very different life's paths, life choices. You know, I'm, uh, my sister, make sure that sister passed away when she was 50. Um, she was always around 100 pounds, 99 pounds most of her life. And she smoked and she did lots of drugs and I didn't do any drugs, probably because I watched her. That's actually, that was a big part of it. And uh, I was not, I was not really close to either of my sisters. Um, I called them all the time. I talked to them all the time. Um, when I listened to the Air Force in 1984, uh, sent me to Germany and, you know, people couldn't call me. So I called every week and I started talking to my sisters every week and I talked to them every week from then. I called one of them every week until 2003. Interesting, isn't it, that relationship with our families? Yes. Okay, well, listen, we might take a short break there. Merhaba. Bugün nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The Good Immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family, because you have a date with Özesuen Özgü, 3CR, 8.55am, Thursdays, 6.30pm to 7pm. See you all then. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today, I'm talking with Jessica and Steve, and we're talking about recovery from food addiction with the help of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. So, Jessica, we, we left you... Uh, I think when you're about 14 or so in middle school. So how did life change for you, you know, sort of being thrown into that very large pool of kids rather than being at a, you know, a smaller school? What was that like? I had come, I, I went to a pretty small middle school and I did really well. And then I went to another middle school and I just stayed doing well. So I just, I just got to be president of things and secretaries of things and kept being perfect in that way. But at the same time, this puberty thing was happening, and I was um, pretty scared about all that. My brother was tall and lanky and calling me Butterball, and I believed him. My weight during this time, I think, was normal, but I sure didn't feel it. Again, I felt pudgy, and dad came back from Vietnam, and um, they tried their marriage again, and they would diet, like, when things were, as a new start, diets were represented a new start for all of us in our family. It, it seemed like when my parents would diet, and then I started dieting too, because I felt pudgy. I had a little success and thought, well, if I want to eat the way I really want to eat, I better lose an extra four pounds or five pounds, you know, or 10 pounds. Or, and I started doing that. And pretty soon I was a hundred pounds at five, six and hospitalized for some medical care because somebody said, the doctor told me there's this thing called anorexia nervosa. This was when I was 14 or 15 and it kills people. And I thought at some level, huh? Well, that could really solve a lot of my problems. I, you know, my fear of growing up and not being perfect. I think I could maybe die a noble death of this, but also thought I had this image of going toward a, a cliff and stopping just in time. I think it won't take me down. But meanwhile, I was getting high from not eating. I was the starvation thing was making me high. And they said, well, okay, they let me out of the hospital once. And they said, if you can maintain your weight, We'll keep you out, but if you lose weight, we're going to put you in the psych ward, and that's what happened. And that was another one where I went, "Huh, that's a good idea. I could get out of my responsibilities and get out of school, and it's starting to get a little hard, and that could solve a lot of things." So they put me on the adult psych ward for three months, my junior year of high school, and I was, meanwhile, still secretary of things and presidents of things and winning awards because I was just that that kid in the school who was quiet and good and a good with the citizen. You know, I was just that perfect a kid 
And meanwhile, I felt terrible about myself. They, you know, they wouldn't let my mother come visit me. And I loved that. I mean, I was just getting so much attention for being sick that way. I could have stayed on that psych ward my whole life. But unfortunately, they tried to feed me um, insulin. So I would crave sugar and I was so strong-willed. My disease was so strong already that I wouldn't drink it. And so I woke up, I went into shock and they couldn't find a pulse. And I woke up with all these tubes in me and they decided to feed me through my nose from that point on. So when I was 15 or 16, I got out of the hospital at a hundred pounds again. And within six months was 200 pounds because I didn't want to leave that hospital. And if they were going to make me leave, I was going to say, well, I'll show you, I'll show you, I can't really deal with this. Here's the other thing. I remember, oh, I, you know, I think about it in terms of this disease, what I didn't, they didn't know about food addiction and they didn't know how to help me. So, and I just knew that if I started, I couldn't stop. And it was true as, you know, for the next 40 years of my life, I was trying to figure out how to deal with my weight. My top weight was about 211 as far as I know, but it was always like 180 to 211. I was always on the pudgy side of things after that. So that's where it took me was into like, and then I would, fast and then I would do diets and I lost 60 pounds when I went to college by eating only these things and then I when it didn't have the desired results and people didn't fall in love with me and my brother didn't tell me I was wonderful I would gain 40 pounds in the next three months so up and down and up and down it was just endless really I could not get enough and yet I couldn't I couldn't get satisfied I guess and yet I always thought this next thing is going to solve it. I'm going to figure it out. I hitchhiked all around during college because it was in the early 70s. And I was trying to make up for my sheltered childhood and tried to have have adventures. And I did. But so many times I've had $5 in my pocket and I go to a restaurant to get that memory, get that good feeling of what that drug could do for me. And again, when I was not eating, I was also high from that too, because I, I, I know both sides of of this disease, but it's the same disease. Yeah. So what was it like in relationships, you know, when you were going through those weight swings? You know, did you find it difficult to have relationships? That's a great question. When I came back from the hospital, I don't think I told anybody and nobody asked. So that was kind of how relationships were. But I still had great people around me. So there were people in college that I was friends with, but I never felt worthy and I was always sneaking. I, I, I could be talking to you and then thinking like, where, what's that over there in that gas station? How can I, I have roommates and eat their food? So I, I would, it's hard to look somebody in the eye in the morning when you've been up ransacking their cupboards the night before and trying to act like nothing's wrong. And in my mind, somehow making it their fault. Somehow, well, I'm eating this because I'm jealous of this and they have more than me. I mean, it was just the thinking was always, yeah, it was always kind of twisted to justify what I was doing. So no, they weren't, they weren't great. And it, again, it would look like I had friends and I did because I had great people in my life, but it would be like, I'm here, but I'm busy. So I'm not here all the time or I'm with you and I won't answer the phone unless I'm feeling good. So I will leave the phone off the hook for weeks at a time so yeah I'm always the person like oh we wish we could see more of you and I'm like yeah me too <laughs> out back I'm running 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 so it was kind of like that I've been very blessed with great people in my life and I couldn't really sink into the relationship I did you know I have a, had a wonderful man in my life I actually got married and he died shortly after we were married but I think it was kind of a miracle. I was already lying about food. I was already fasting part of the week and eating with him. And he was in the Air Force and was killed um, in a way that when I was in my early 20s. So I don't know how I would have messed up that relationship, but I'm pretty sure I would have because I was lying. Yeah. So what about when you're working? How did food impact on your life, you know, in that way? Oh, man. I had a job. I mean, I, I, after my husband died, I got to graduate school, got a career again, looked good on the surface, but part of my job was to answer the phones for intakes and like follow up with people who needed therapy. And I would go days without answering the phone because I just didn't have it in me. And instead of sitting at the desk and dealing with those messages, I would go to the grocery store for an hour or so and roam around and find the thing that was going to be 
good and get five of them, you know, and then eat them on the way back. I remember I spent the night in the office one night because I just couldn't bear to drive the 30 miles home. And it was kind of fun. It was just me and the food and the video machine. And it was just like, I, again, I could look okay. I did okay. And oh my gosh, it was, it was a double life, I guess, was how it was. Yeah. So when did it start becoming a problem to you? Another great question. I would say that somebody approached me at the vending machine at my job when I was about 30, I think, and had another 12-step program for me. And uh, so I went to that for a little while. And I liked the spirituality and I liked the literature and I liked the people a lot. I didn't get relief from the food thing, but that was sort of an introduction to the 12 steps. I heard about FAA and I had a whole lot of respect for the 12 step, but I didn't think, who, me? No. People told me I was an adult child of an alcoholic and I'd gone to some of those meetings too, but again, I was like, oh no, I'm I'm fine here. Had lots of therapy, years and years of therapy, but I'm fine because I never talked about the food in the therapy Um, because I was trying to look good for the therapist and I am a therapist. So (laughs) Anyway, I thought that they'd take my license away. So, oh, how did I get into, yeah. So I was introduced to the 12 steps in relation to food in in the early 90s when I was about 40, I guess, about 37. And it was 10 years later that I found FA, but I had had left and, but I didn't, you asked me, I, I still don't know that I understood that food addiction was my problem. I just thought I hadn't found the right diet yet. I think I hadn't found the magical solution. I lived lived in the Bay Area where there's lots of holistic this. And I just knew if I ate the right combination of whatever I, you know, as much as I wanted of the right combination, it was going to be okay. I just didn't get how quantities fit in my life. And every magic solution, I would feel so hopeful and be proselytizing about the latest solution. But I didn't get that I was a food addict. Yeah. I just thought, I can't quite get it together. I can't quite pay my bills, even though I have the money. I can't quite open my mail. I can't quite act like a grown up. but I'm sure I'll get it together. I just didn't know that it had anything to do with food. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So Steve, we ended up talking, I think you're about sort of similar age, sort of uh, mid-teens. So, you know, mid-teens through college and into work, how did your eating progress during that period? So, like I said, I, I always ate, so it never stopped. So in high school, and I think this started before high school, I I wouldn't eat breakfast, I wouldn't eat lunch, and that wasn't a matter so much a matter of uh, diet. It was a matter of um, I didn't give myself any time in the morning. I didn't have any money to buy lunch, so I wasn't about to put the energy into putting it together. So as soon as I came home from school, I started, you know, I started eating, and I stopped after I went to bed. Um, that's pretty much how I controlled my eating pretty much the rest of my life. There were times where I ate breakfast and there's times where I ate lunch, but I would start eating at some point in the day and I would stop when I put my head in the pillow, sometimes still chewing. And I just did that. I, uh, um, in high school, one of the things that started is my mother started away. So she lost a bunch of weight. She lost like a hundred and some odd pounds. And that, and I started cooking. So my mother started working. I was the last kid still at home, still cooked the same amount of food. And then I'd go next door and this probably started in seventh, eighth grade to our Italian neighbors. And uh, I'd eat my second dinner there. I left them with leftovers because there was just a huge amount of food and I had already eaten. Um, So, but um, I was known when I babysat for them that I would eat and go into their fridge all night. You know, um, that was actually never a question. Uh, for them they didn't they encouraged it so yeah you know um, my parents got divorced when I was I think 19 18 or 19 it was two weeks before their 32nd anniversary Uh, my mother served my father at work I knew it was going to happen only because my grandmother my father's mother told me that my mother was going to divorce my father my father didn't know so yeah I was pretty numb by that point in time I can't tell you exactly how I ate at that time because uh I don't, I never hid my eating from other people. I hid it for myself. Right? I was the guy, I, I ate right in front of you. I, and I was the baby in a loud New York family. I learned how you hide is right in front of people. Um, I learned the loneliest places in a crowd and I forced myself into crowds all the time. 
because um, I could pretend I was with people, but I could be alone. That's just what I did, you know, through uh, high school. I didn't want to go straight away to college. My parents didn't go to college. It was important. My the sister in the middle didn't go to college. The older sister did. So if I didn't go straight to college, I'd never go to college. So I went away to college, worked in the cafeteria, all you can eat meal plan, and I ate everything. And I worked in the dish room. So, you know, I couldn't eat everything that we, that the cafeteria threw out, but I tried. And I ate desserts off of trays that came in through the window from other students. I didn't care. I just ate. I just ate, you know. When I started working as a kid, I can remember. So because my parents, did, my mother's stuff, that we, they never really bought candy for the house. But I can remember, there's two or three popular named candy bars. I can remember the first time I ate them because I was 17, 18, 19 years old. I can remember biting them, how good they were, looking at, looking at them like they did on the commercial and thinking, by God, it's huge. This big thing is I have this memory and how good it was. And the subsequent 10,000 never tasted that well, that good as that first one. But I tried. Um, yeah, I dropped out of college numerous times. I can't tell you all the details of my eating. I did go through times of controlling my eating. That's through my whole life. I quote unquote controlled my eating, you know. Dropped out of college a few times, so I enlisted in the Air Force. I enlisted in the Air Force, which is what I wanted to do out of high school. But it was a no-no in my family. Um, I was 21 when I went to basic training. I actually didn't tell my parents until two months after I signed the contract. And first time on an airplane was going to the Air Force. And I remember they fed all kinds of strange food because it just, I was in a Jewish family. It just wasn't certain things that, I mean, not my parents were religious. It's just, they didn't eat. I didn't make it home very often. And it was at every meal and everything was breaded. Everything had flour on it. And I just gobbled on everything I ate. And then all of a sudden I had money after a few weeks and we got to go buy candy. And that was the first time, I mean, you know, they used to say the richest person in the world is, uh, you know, is an enlisted person straight out of, straight out of basic training because you got three hots and a cot and a paycheck, right? For the first time in your life. You know, and I had reduced rate vending machines in the barracks. I had uh, three all-you-can-eat meals, uh, and I had cheap food to eat on on base. I could go to the exchange and buy cheap candy, and I did. I did. I ended basic training fatter than when I got there, which in the 80s in the U.S. Air Force was not unusual but I got to tell you, my clothes, my uniforms were tight when I got out of basic training. And by the time I got out of, I spent six months in tech school. Man, I could, I could barely fit in my dress blues. Tight around the collar, tight around the waist. Uh, but the Air Force doesn't really make you do a lot of physical stuff, at least in those years. And by the way, I spent six months in tech school and I was shocked because I, when we started actually doing the job halfway uh, about halfway through the training, I was shocked by the fact that I could do the job. The, pretty much, I think the exact words in my head was, oh, well, you're not such a dumb, and it's an expletive for rear end. But that's exactly, that's exactly what I said in my head, you know, because that's, I thought I was a loser, right? That said, I had a, I had a solid B plus average and like a hundred some odd credits to college, but I thought I was a complete moron. And I paid for college completely by myself, but I thought I was a complete moron. Yeah. So when did you think you had a problem with food? So there were times I had glimpses um, about it. When I was 27, I did a diet. Um, I just been, I was recently married. I was out of the Air Force. I did a diet. I did Weight Watchers. I lost weight. wasn't a big deal. I and, mean, of course, years and a half, two years later, we went back to Weight Watchers because, you know, did such a good job the first time. I tried the second time. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So the decision I made in my head was I'm not going to do a diet because I can't do it. It's just going to make me feel worse about myself. So I never did a diet again, but I pretended to control my eating. But I never consciously said I was fat. During the 1990s, I had back problems start. I hurt my back 
once when I was 16 and again when I was in the, in the Air Force and I was gaining weight. I did not really gain weight till I was, till I, till I was in the Air Force. I was 21, 22 years old and my back started going out over the years. And during the 1990s, I have no idea what my weight was, but I know my back kept going out and I somehow knew that I had gained a few pounds. I tried to control my eating, but it didn't work. So I just pretended I'd round off the weight to zero five. But until I came into program, not thinking I was a, I was a food actor, even thinking I was fat. That's not why I came into program. Right. I had no idea. Okay. Awesome. We might take another short break there. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Jessica and Steve, and we're talking about recovery from food obsession with the help of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. So Jessica, we were talking earlier, uh, you mentioned you got into the 12-step program and you were doing therapy. So what was it like at that stage of your life when you knew you were different from other people and there were you know, people were sort of saying there's solutions out there, but what caused you to pick Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous as the program that suited you? That's a great question. I think it picked me, honestly, or higher power did it because I wouldn't have chosen this, honestly. <laughs> I didn't think I was a food addict, but fortunately, having been in another program in uh, the early 90s, I did have a respect for the 12 steps and I wanted it to apply to me. I went back to that program after 10 years of trying and losing 50 pounds and, and not, not knowing how to keep it off. And I remember after I'd lost that 50 pounds and they said, okay, you're on maintenance now. It had taken me a year to lose it. And it was one of like 10 programs I'd tried and not a 12 step, but like a commercial weight loss thing. And, and they said, go maintain. And I only got to eat a little bit more than when I'd been hanging on so tight for that year. And I was like, I can't do this. And I looked in the, in the drawer where they had these diet snacks that were full of sugar. And I remember the words demoralization came to me like, this is demoralization. And I'd heard that word in a 12 step group of incomprehensible demoralization. And that's what I felt. So I went back to that and it was at one of those, um, it was a newcomer gathering for that other program that somebody in the bathroom said, I like FA better. And I was like, what? And I got her number for some reason. And for some reason I called her up and for some reason I showed up at a meeting and um, didn't, I thought it was very extreme, was not for me. Everybody was sitting up very straight, looking very cheerful, bright eyed, but I didn't think, it. I didn't need something that drastic. No, I mean, they were very orderly and, very friendly, but it's, you know, I, just, I like a little wiggle room. I like an escape hatch and this, you know, so I didn't really know what the program was. And it took me literally three months to get a sponsor. Like I didn't really start working the program. I just found myself back in the chairs, listening to the stories. I was fascinated by the stories. These were people who were so clear and so light about and naming their relationship with food was, I had so much shame about it. And they were just talking matter of factly about stuff that I did. And they were in the front and they were getting jobs and losing jobs and getting married and, you know, having lives and traveling. And they would talk about their food in a really matter of fact way. And that's why I came in because I was 180 pounds. I thought I was sort of okay at 180. I was less than I'd been. So it was kind of, I didn't think I was fat. But I did like the idea of not having an obsession and not having so much shame. So that's what kept me coming back. And it wasn't until I got a sponsor that I really started working the food plan and doing the tools that we do and getting the benefits. But I, it was sort of an act. It was literally there, the chances of my finding this program were so small that I just 
I'm so blessed. I don't want to lose it because I, I can't imagine what got me here that kept me here. And here it is. Here I am, 16, 17 years later. Okay. So what is it that keeps you in food addicts in recovery? It works for me. I mean, from the first night when the sponsor told me what my food plan was, I wrote it down as I was instructed and I ate it the next day. That first day, it was such a relief. I just needed that. So the structure of it, of the food plan, it's a very healthy plan and very doable, very normal food. And um, so I needed that. And, and the idea that all around me, when I first walked into a meeting, there were so many people who were abstinent from flour and sugar. And that's what we call it, sobriety. It's, you know, being able to refrain from that. And there were people who'd been that way for a year, two years, three years, five years at the time. Now it's like 40 years, but you know, there was, it was, it was like a thing. You could do that. You could get absent and stay absent. I'd never seen that before at all and keep growing. So I think it was the things we do. We call people where our sponsors expect us to have these conversations with people throughout the day. I would not do that voluntarily, but I would find that I would do the thing, even though I didn't feel like it and it would kind of work so that I haven't, it just parts of it have been surprisingly easy and I don't, and I knew at that point already at age 47, that if I deviated even a little from those amounts that were taught to eat and from those things that she told me to do, I would be sunk because I just am such a cheat. <laughs> I mean, I like squishiness. I like, I don't like clarity. I, I don't like commitment. I, I like to be a free spirit. And here was sort of the opposite, but I saw how people were thriving in the midst of the structure. Somebody in my first meeting turned around and said to me, I've been working this for six weeks and my husband already tells me that I finish what I start now. And that really got me more than anything because I didn't, I was disorganized. I was spacey. I was all over the place. And, and so I think that's what really attracted me was the quality of people's lives. And it continues to I see people grow and change and develop spiritual spiritual relationships that serve them that are practical and i can't imagine not having it yeah so one of the things in the program is about sugar flour and quantities so do you want to talk a little bit about what that means to you in your life yeah it solves so much for me because i was all about quantities and and sugar did have kind of a upper effect and flour downer effect i didn't realize how much i was regulating my my mood by food and also by manipulating my blood sugar. For me, the, we eat at certain, you know, we get guided to eat at regular times. And I was all over the place with that. You know, the, the, I was addicted to not eating just the way I was addicted to eating. So for me, just no flowers, no sugar. And these are the quantities you eat, no more, no less. That was like, wow, that gave me like a paved road to, rock, to ride on when I've been sort of trying to make my way through the forest. And uh, I, that's what, what it does for me. So what about relationships now? Well, I think that we start these phone calls, you know, I talked about and have seeing people at the meetings when we are able to have in-person meetings and they teach us to do service. So we sort of get to know one another as we're working on projects together, be it moving chairs or welcoming newcomers, you know, all these things that we get to do. Um, I get used to people and I sort of get used to owing them something. And I, we hear, I hear from them from the front of the room and in my phone calls about their lives. And they've taught me how to talk about myself. So I really have learned how to be a friend and have friends in this program, partly because I have a sponsor who I need to be honest with and who cares about me and enough to call me on my stuff. So I think it, I think what's helped is not having to be perfect any, you know, and being able to be honest and have people stick with me who really see the ugliness that I bring, you know, that my humanness, it's, it's a really practical lesson being human I think, and having that be okay. I have much better with my folks. I can, my best example is um, I talk to my folks regularly so that when my mom got cancer 10 years ago, I was ready to be a better daughter to her when I kept her at a distance for years and years and years. And here I am for a year looking after them during the pandemic and it's been precious. And I get, I get guidance every day from my fellows, from my sponsor on how to be in this role because 
I'm not as nice a person as I am when I live by myself. People are hard and um, I'm hard. I'm self-centered. And so it just, I get, I get lots of practice of being with people. Yeah. Thank you. So Steve, we left you when you said Weight Watchers wasn't working for you. And you said, I think you said you had some back problems and you were gaining weight. So how did that translate to looking for a solution, a long-term solution? So for me, so I got laid off in uh, June of 2002 and I was lost when I got laid off. Um, it was, you know, not that right after nine, the 9-11 here in the U.S. And I worked in telecom and that just, you know, they, they called it the nuclear winter uh, in telecom. It just telecom just, just evaporated. All the jobs just disappeared. And I didn't know what to do. I, I actually, I knew what to do, but I couldn't do it. And I sunk into a hole. Shortly after I got laid off, I stopped drinking because I was always terrified of being an alcoholic. Um, and I just ate more. I know that now. I didn't know at the time. 15 months later, I'm still unemployed. And my wife tells me about this job fair. And I knew the job that was considered beneath me as an engineer. And I had to do something. So I said, well, you know, therapy never worked. Um, and I'm a pretty compliant, conformist guy. So I usually did what they said, but, you know, I never told them the truth. So when I lied to myself, so I decided, you know, my, you know, my, I, know I, I knew my mother was in OA for a number of years and she left OA but, and she gained her all the weight back. And I knew well, she had a problem with food and I knew I was 40 and I knew I had gained at least 25 pounds um, since I got laid off. So I said, well, why don't I try a food program? So I called a friend of mine who I actually thought was doing OA about it and went to a meeting and I have no idea what they said at that meeting. I walked into that meeting, committed to myself. I wasn't going to talk to anybody and I wasn't going to make any, decide anything before I left the meeting. And my break, I decided I was just going to come back in a couple of weeks after the Jewish holidays and just start the stupid thing. It's exactly what I thought. And I mumbled because I didn't really talk clearly. Um, I was so, so out of it because I knew I was going to get that job and I got that job. And that job was, by the way, in an inbound call center, fixing people's computers. I have no idea why they hired me because I couldn't form a sentence at the time. You know, and I started this program. And like I said, I had no idea I was a food addict. And I'm a, I'm a pretty compliant guy. So I started this program October 13, 2003. And I started that training for that horrible job, October 13, 2003. I was just angry. Uh, I guess now I could, you know, they'd say I was angry, but I was I was just angry all the time and I stopped, you know, I stopped eating and I was making phone calls to people as they suggested during my break. And I was angry and I was angry at the people in the training session. And what I remember the most about it was the drink of the guy next to me, the candy bar, the guy always had diagonally to the right to me. And the guy two rows in front of me who had also a drink drink there that I couldn't drink and how dare they do that during during the session that's all I remember of, of that 30-day training you know I was just angry I was just angry but I did that job and over time I not only you know I, I got a job offer and I took the job offer and then the job offer got rescinded for other reasons and I realized that's one of those things where it was just meant to be that I wasn't going to have it and then I was getting job offers for a lot more money but they weren't secure. They didn't have benefits and they were requiring me to live temporarily in other locations away from my wife and kids. And I did something I never did. I turned them down. And then I got a permanent job offer for that. And all of a sudden, start, you know, things started working, you know, and I was happier all of a sudden. My wife started doing programs seven months later for a while because now I, I was surprised. I was completely shocked. But, you know, um, people started smiling at me. I was not a nice guy. And like I said, I'm from New York. You know, I used to describe myself as a cynical New York engineer. I could tell you what's wrong with anything, any point of time. You know, I could put you down and make you laugh at the same time. You know, I, I had officers and senior NCOs in the Air Force that I would tell them a joke to tell them off. And I would and I would walk away as I realized that they would it would click in their head that they that they would stop laughing and realize I insulted and I would be walking away when that happened, right? But I I would wait to, I would wait for that click in their head before I walk away, right? And I I mean I told CEOs of startups I was at that they were idiots, you know, because I I thought I knew everything and I realized I knew nothing. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I wasn't looking for it. I was just looking for help. I, I didn't expect to stick around. I just wanted to survive that survival job. I didn't know what to do. So when did things change? Pretty quickly, because that job, I started enjoying that job. I learned to, it was an hourly job, so I learned to work when I was paid to work, and I didn't work when I wasn't working, as opposed to working all the time, which is what I did, you know, as a salaried employee. I ate only what I was supposed to eat instead of eating all the time. I didn't yell at people. I started paying attention to my wife, evidently, because she stopped, you know, we started getting along more. You know, I... I got, you know, I actually, I got a, I got two job offers at the, at that company. I got a permanent job at, for the temp offer for the temp job, and I got an engineering job that paid a lot more money in the same company. Um, just things just started getting better. I didn't realize it, but I had spent most of my life looking at life through brown colored glasses. You know, I was just horrible. You know, um, I live in sunny Southern California and I always refer to it as sunny Southern California because I didn't know why they called it sunny because I never thought I saw the sun. Right. And I look at videos of my kids and I'm looking at how bright it was. But I never saw that. Right. That's just not how I saw life to me. Everything sucked. And I wanted to tell you how much it sucked. Right. That's how I viewed life. Yeah. So what about your children then? You mentioned you had children. So what was your relationship like with the children once you're in recovery? My daughter has some memories because they were pretty young, but she remembers that I just stopped yelling. Um, I certainly didn't eat their, their food, their candy, because I, I was notorious for that. But I just stopped yelling. Not completely. It took me a long time because, you know, they been a long time. So they were teenagers. They've been through teenage years. And so took me a long time to learn how to deal with that. But uh, I mean, I get along, I talk to my son two, three times a day, two, uh, two three times today. Um, some of it from asking to help, some of them to tell me how his day went. Um, that's not what it would have been like. And my son's made many life choices no parent would have wanted to make, him to make. You know, he's 24 now, about to turn 25. And, you know, but I still talk to him, you know. And of course, I, you know, I talk to her daughter all the, uh, all the time as well. You know, I would not have had that relationship. You know, they call me when anything's, when they need help with anything. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? To find out more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can phone them in Australia on 1800 717 446 or go online at foodaddicts.org for local meetings and contact information. And in the US, um, Jessica, what's the number in the US? It's 781-932-6300. Thank you. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. Uh, so I'd like to thank Jessica and Steve for sharing their food addicts and recovery anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature recovery from other addictions as well as recovery for their family and friends. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.